Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Good morning, everyone. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Jensen will now introduce our next speaker. Bradley Lewis is Associate Professor in the School of Philosophy at Catholic University of America, specializing in political and legal philosophy, especially that of the classical Greeks and Thomistic tradition. Currently working on a book on the idea of the common good. Uh, all of these uh, qualify him well to speak on punishment, which certainly has something to do with the common good. So please welcome Bradley Lewis. Yes, okay, thank you. And uh, thank you to uh, Father Ambrose for the uh, invitation to come here. Um, but as a wise man once said, Father, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, so here we go. Uh, <clears throat> punishment, particularly in its theoretical justification, has always been among the most vexed provinces of law's empire. Lawyers have tended to focus on the four classic rationales of criminal punishment, retribution on the basis of which one is punished only because one deserves punishment for breaking the law, restraint, which removes the threat posed by the criminal by removing the criminal from free circulation in society. As Ben Wattenberg used to say, if he's in jail, he can't mug your sister. Deterrence, which aims by the punishment of one to influence the conduct of many more. And reform, in which punishment is a form of remedial education or therapy. There is an obvious problem here, since only retribution seems to serve as a rationale for punishment as such. Restraint and deterrence both aim to affect certain consequences beyond the subject of punishment. The safety of the community, either because criminals are not at liberty or because potential criminals are successfully convinced that crime is a bad bet. Reform actually benefits the criminal, and so there seems something odd about calling it punishment at all. Philosophers have tended to operate with more streamlined categories assimilating the traditional justifications into two main rival camps in modern moral philosophy more generally, that is, into either deontological or consequentialist theories of punishment. 
So the rationale for punishment is either mainly backward-looking, retribution, or forward-looking, mainly reform. There are also mixed theories, and of course, there are a number of skeptical anti-theories of punishment. Skepticism about the justification of punishment is not at all uncommon among legal theorists and moral philosophers today, and is often connected to a more basic skepticism about the justification of any kind of political authority. The desire to connect the issue of uh, justification of punishment to that of political authority, to core, is quite reasonable, as is the seemingly perennial dualism captured in the rivalry of deontological and at least some kinds of consequentialist theories. At least the two most basic rationales for punishment in the four with which I began. The tension between the goals of retribution on the one hand and reform on the other is already thematic among the ancient Greek thinkers who held that a reformist or medicinal view of punishment was the only one that could ultimately be justified, but who nevertheless allowed, and this is especially the case with Plato, allowed himself to admit a certain amount of retributive punishment into the most, his most detailed attempt to construct a city in speech. That's, again, in the case of Plato. Retribution represents a very basic human impulse that resists transgressions against social order, even if its effects are, as they have often been, pointlessly cruel. Reform is not only from the standpoint of the one punished, but from that of society, in some respects much preferable, since it returns to society a valuable resource for the common good, namely a better person. St. Thomas knew this tension. Indeed, he knew all of the content of modern punishment theory, the main lines of those justifications at any rate, one can find him advocating all four of the classical rationales. But also he clearly grasps the centrality of retribution and reform. The most distinctive aspects of Thomas's view are a function of his placing both political authority and punishment in the context not just of temporal social order, but of the more sweeping order of divine providence. The normative priority of retribution in Thomas's account is anchored in the fact that it is ultimately God who practices retributive punishment. And so this priority is consistent with a kind of practical priority for reform in the realm of human law. And what follows, I want to pursue two kind of big issues. First, the issue of how punishment is at once an evil and a good, and second, I want to look at the details of how Thomas thinks punishment works. First, by asking who is liable to punishment. Second, who's permitted to punish. Third, what can be, uh, with what punishment can be given. And throughout, we'll see that for Thomas, human punishment always exists, as it were, in the shadow of, not just the shadow of, as a kind of participation, ultimately, in divine justice. So the first part... Punishment is an apparent evil in response to a real or absolute evil. Thomas has a psychology of punishment that corresponds to a natural theory of punishment grounded in a theology of punishment. To see the sense in which punishment is an evil, we have to look at his psychological theory 
punishments are seen by human beings as evil because they are deprivations. Deprivations of something perceived as good, effected in return for a transgression of the order of human actions toward the final end. A particular kind of evil, constitutive of punishment, is its being contrary to the will of the one punished. This contrariety to will is the formal character of punishment. Sin is a use of the will, an over or inordinate indulgence of one's will. Punishment is a deprivation directed against one's will. And both the deprivation and the denial of one's free choice are certainly perceived by the one punished as evils. Punishment, then, is a deprivation contrary to a person's will. The character of the deprivation, and I'll say more about the specifics of that later, is also an aspect of the evil since punishments can involve pain or injury. Although it is not the body as such that is the object of punishment, but as I say, the will. This is why, quote, this is why fear of punishment can act as a motive. Uh, uh, Thomas says, the fear is fear of a particular deprivation. And Thomas frequently says that the fear of punishment is one tool used by a legislator to support obedience to law. The deprivation of some good thing that one wants can, of course, be a means to encourage or to teach one to pursue better things. But the deprivation contrary to will appears as an evil. Thomas says in the Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 3, Chapter 141, quote, Since it is essential to punishment that it be not only an evil, but that it be against the will, the loss of corporal and external things, even when it helps man towards virtue and not towards evil, is called punishment in an improper sense because it is contrary to will. How does deprivation contrary to will lead towards virtue? In the treatise on law, Thomas holds that the acquisition of virtue is in some measure the discipline that consists in withdrawal from undue pleasures. Obviously, children receive this discipline from parents, but not all parents are successful, and some children may naturally have passions that resist parental discipline. Law, then, must restrain such persons from evil, Thomas says, quote, by force or fear, unquote, and it may even go beyond this. He says in Prima Secundae, question 95, article 1, quote, so that they might at any rate desist from evil doing and leave others in peace, right, punished for that reason, and that they themselves, by having habits formed in them in this way, might be brought to do willingly what formerly they did from fear and so be made into virtuous men, unquote. Here Thomas assumes that punishment can effect both restraint and reform, but it also involves a withdrawal from the objects of the malefactor's desires that is contrary to his will, and this makes it punishment in the focal sense. That sense, which is at its core retributive, has a natural basis. Thomas holds that there is a transfer from natural things, the order of natural things, to the order of human affairs, such that, quote, whenever one thing rises up against another, it suffers some detriment therefrom. And the term uh, there that's translated as rising up, insurgit. So I think when you hear rises up, it sounds kind of vague, but 
insurgency, if you think of it that way, right? An uprising is, is what he has. It might be something that's, in a certain respect, violent. In human beings, there is a natural inclination to repress those who rise up against them. When one is part of an order, one is part of a unity, Thomas says, relative to the principle of that order. And so any uprising is put down by the order or its principle. And that putting down, that depressio, is punishment. There is a natural inclination in human beings to remove harm, an inclination actualized by the irascible power, a power that causes one to react against harm and one imagines also to respond to threats of various kinds. This is clearly an aspect of what the Greeks called spiritedness or thumos. As with any natural inclination to an end, there is a virtue that appropriately disposes the relevant power, and that is true here. The virtue is the one that Thomas called vindicatio. Thomas characterizes actions of vindicatio as, quote, infliction of penal evil, poinale malum, on one who has sinned. As one can easily imagine, this provides rich opportunity for self-indulgent cruelty, as Nietzsche rightly recognized. Nietzsche's theory of punishment turns it all into cruelty. Uh, But that doesn't mean the temptation isn't there. Uh, He takes the sort of going off of the rails, the extreme, as, as, as the center of the thing. That's the mistake. So Nietzsche rightly recognized, but wrongly absolutized as the very essence of punishment. Thomas is careful to distinguish justified from unjustified vindicatio. If one focuses on the evil of punishing, that is, revels in the evil of the sinner as an occasion for the infliction of evil on him, then one sins oneself. If the focus of punishment is on some good, Thomas specifically mentions restraint and reform, but also the upholding of justice and the honoring of God, then vindicatio is lawful, provided he adds that, quote, other due circumstances are observed, unquote. What might this mean, right, the due circumstances? I'll return to this below when I address the question, who may punish? For now, what matters is that punishment has a basis in a wide sense of nature, one thing engaged in an uprising against another, but also in specifically human nature or psychology, that is, the the desire to defend oneself and one's own and to strike back at sources of harm. Nature itself, however, is not the only source or background of this phenomenon, which we should have already expected, simply by recalling that first and foremost, God punishes. God's punishments are, Thomas says, quote, not for their own sake, unquote, but, quote, for the imposition of order on creatures, in which order the good of the universe consists, unquote. Divine punishment repairs a disturbance in the order of creatures towards their end. Divine punishment is meted out to those who have, through their free, deliberate choices, acted against their own ultimate ends, And so divine punishment is primarily the permanent deprivation of that end. It is not irreparable, but can be healed only by divine power. The temporal order is a reflection of this. Vicious acts disturb the order of justice and the depressio of punishment is intended to heal that order by remedying vice 
promoting and protecting the concord that a chief constitutive element that is a chief constitutive element of the temporal common good. It is, in fact, Thomas says more than once, a part of divine providence. To summarize this part, then, punishment is experienced by the sinner as an evil because of the deprivation of some good against his will. This is the very ratio poine, the intelligibility or formality of punishment. The restoration of order is itself a good both in the temporal order and in the larger order of providence. The reason the sinner sees punishment as an evil is a disorder within himself, a disorder of the affections that is an effect of original sin, leading to ignorance of the true good and overindulgence of one's will in lower or merely apparent goods. Again, the true, the true evil, Thomas says, is not so much punishment as it is the deserving of punishment. There is, however, an important difference between divine and human punishment. Divine punishment is punishment essentially. It is focally and in substance retributive, although it can have other effects as well. Human temporal punishment, however, is, Thomas says repeatedly, mostly medicinal in its aim. The punishments of this present, quote, the punishments of this present life are more curative than retributive, for retribution is reserved to divine punishment, which is passed upon sinners according to the truth, unquote. This and genuine retribution requires the kind of knowledge, retribution in the deepest, most sweeping sense, requires the kind of knowledge that only God has. Yet the ratio poine, contrariety to the will, is in and of itself painful, a kind of pain perceived as an evil by the subject of punishment, which serves both as a means to reform, but also has a retributive aspect. Even medicinal punishment exists, as it were, in this uh, shadow, you might say, uh, or realm of retribution. An element is always there. Two additional points about that. First, while the very formality of punishment is its opposition to the will of the one punished, Thomas says that there are ways in which punishment can become, at least to some extent, voluntary. In discussing human transgressions against the divine order of justice, Thomas holds that punishment can be, as it were, adopted by the will of the one punished. And in this way, it can take on the character of satisfaction or expiation. Clearly, he has in mind the penitent sinner who accepts a penance in the spirit of contrition. He says in uh, uh, the Prima Secundae of the Summa, question 87, article 6, the following. When punishment is satisfactory, it loses somewhat the nature of punishment. For the nature of punishment is to be against the will. And although satisfactory punishment, absolutely speaking, is against the will, nevertheless, in this particular case and for this particular purpose, it is voluntary. Consequently, it is voluntary absolutely, but involuntary in a certain respect. Something similar could, of course, happen in the temporal order, and this can be part of the aim of medicinal punishment. How often such a thing happens in our own penal system is a topic worth reflection. Our own prisons often seem to serve more as advanced academies of criminal knowledge 
than is really reformist, and the recidivist rates would seem to be evidence for that generalization. Um, Second, while Thomas says most about the two perennial poles of punishment, retribution and reform, he recognizes the other classic aims as well. Punishment can and should deter others from engaging in sin and crime, and sometimes punishment aims simply to restrain the offender so that he cannot commit more crimes. Both are required to maintain any kind of tolerable social order. Okay, so that's the first big point I wanted to make. The second, then, are a series of slightly more detailed questions about punishment. Um, So the second part of my presentation, I want to discuss three particular aspects of punishment in light of what I have just said. First, who is liable to punishment? Second, who can licitly punish? And third, with what can the guilty be punished? Put differently, if contrariety to the will is the form of punishment, what can be its matter? The answer to the first question is relatively simple. Punishment requires fault, culpa. There is no punishment without fault. Thomas says in uh, Contra Gentile's uh, book three, chapter 141, quote, as a result of the disorder in man, it happens that man may not judge things as they are, but may set corporeal things above spiritual ones. Now, such disorder in ordinatio is either a fault or it stems from some preceding fault. Consequently, it is evident that there is no punishment from man, even in the sense of being contrary to will without prior fault. Thomas dwells at some length on the relationship between culpa and poina in De Malo, question one, article four, largely by comparing the two. There is this symmetry between the perfection of goodness and the deprivation of evil. Perfection or deprivation in the acts of intelligent creatures can be related to forms and dispositions or to actions themselves. The evil of fault is in disordered acts of the will, so in actions themselves. One suffers evil insofar as one is deprived of either the forms or or dispositions related to actions, or there's deprivation in the action itself. Punishment is a deprivation of forms or dispositions, that is, of means or modes of action, and can refer to goods of the soul, grace in the case of God's punishment of original sin, deprivation of that, or goods of the body in the case of physical restrictions or injuries, or it can be deprivation of external goods, money, for example, in the case of fines. So Thomas contrasts culpa and poina in this way. First, culpa indicates evil of the action itself. Poina, punishment, indicates an evil befalling the cause of action. Second, fault or culpa is voluntary. Poina is contrary to the will. Third, culpa or fault is in action, and poina or punishment is being acted upon. Fault is also described more specifically as inhering in acts that are contrary, and so punishment follows such violations. Those acts are also described as inordinate, that is, inordinate relative to their ultimate ends so violating the good of order that we 
heard about yesterday. Uh, either the final end, unity with God, or the separate common good of the universe, or inordinate relative to the end that is the temporal common good. If punishment requires fault, then there can be no punishment without fault. That is, there can be no punishment of the innocent. One may see this as inconsistent with the fact that the disorder of human affections is said by Thomas to be part of the punishment for original sin. But Thomas's view is not that the defects in human affections or subsequent generations are separate punishments, but rather that the defect is passed on through generations. Indeed, his language here is it's got a kind of biological character to it. A fault of original sin is an infectio, an infection. It's contracted uh, by descendants. So punishment then is always due to some fault, and that's why he distinguishes. He says some specific fault or some prior fault that this fault is a consequence of. The second question I mentioned concerns who can licitly punish. Here again, the human practice is related, in one sense quite closely, to the order of divine providence, since first and foremost, God can punish. Uh, Thomas says in Contra Gentile 3, 140, for the function of punishing and rewarding belongs to him whose office it is to impose the law. Indeed, lawmakers enforce observation of the law by means of rewards and punishments, but it belongs to divine providence to lay down law for men as is clear from the previous statements, that is in chapter 114. Therefore, it belongs to God to punish and reward men. The same principle holds in human society. Those who make the law must see to its enforcement. In the treatise on law, fear of punishment is frequently mentioned as a motive. And while interestingly, punishment does not figure in Thomas's well-known definition of law, right, that law is an uh, ordinance of reason directed to the common good by whoever has the care of the community and promulgated. So that four-part Aristotelian definition doesn't contain within itself punishment. So punishment is not in that definition of law. However, Thomas does count it following Isidore in the very next article as one of the acts of law. Uh, the legis now, the legislator, of course, seldom, I mean, if ever, the legislator wouldn't engage in acts of punishment directly Thomas says, quote, to punish pertains to no one apart from the minister of the law, unquote. Elsewhere, he describes punishment more abstractly uh, as being imposed by whoever governs. But usually when he's speaking about punishment in the temporal order, he mentions judges or ministers. Right? And a minister can be a judge, but it can also be some, I mean, what we would call, I suppose, a police or penal official or something like that, acting on the decision of a judge. Uh, or a court. What is most important is that punishment, which is almost always a coercive act, and certainly the punishments in the temporal realm are coercive acts, can only licitly be carried out by public officials. Uh, one might ask here about punishment of children by parents. I think Thomas would say that this is not punishment in the focal sense, partly because Thomas's view is that children are in some certainly moral sense understood to be parts of their parents. Um, um, uh, 
So while there's a kind of justice, he says, that exists in families, it's different than justice in the ordinary sense. It's different than the ordinary kind of temporal justice. Thomas also considers the possibility suggested by a plain reading of scripture that judging and therefore presumably punishment is forbidden to Christians who are enjoined by the master from judging others. Judging and punishment, Thomas, however, says are allowed provided that they follow three conditions. Judgment must proceed from an inclination of justice. It must proceed from one who has authority and it must be pronounced according to right reason and prudence. That's in uh, Secunda Secunde, question 60, article 2. It's interesting to note there that the, the symmetry between those three conditions, right? One might say that those three conditions are the conditions of just punishment. They're almost identical to the conditions for just war, the, the use ad bellum conditions of just war. So... Uh, that uh, there be a just cause, that there be right intention, and that, that there be legitimate authority. Uh, it, it, it tracks those very close. And I think the reason is obvious that in both cases we're talking about coercion, a kind of coercion which is only justifiable for public authority and under very specific, fairly stringent conditions. Elsewhere, Thomas is clear that even lawful punishments become unjust if they're motivated by hatred. Of course, same thing would be true for war. If war were simply motivated by hatred, then it would become unjust as well. Or if the intention of the people fighting the war simply became to kind of revel in cruelty, then even if it's a just war, it becomes unjust. And the same is true of punishment. <clears throat> the point about legitimate authority reminds us of the necessity that punishment be carried out by public officials and not by private persons. This is because for Thomas, the use of coercive authority in the enforcement of law or in military affairs is actually a derivative power that has its ultimate source in God. Judges, he says, are, quote, executors of divine providence, unquote, and, quote, ministers of God, unquote. All Christian political thinkers must reckon with the content of Romans 13, and Thomas does. In his commentary on Romans 13, he affirms that political rulers get their power ultimately from God and must be understood as ministers of his order, including by their just power to punish. Quote, it is clear that it is not only lawful but meritorious for rulers to execute vindicatio on the wicked, and uh, when it is done, out of a zeal for justice, unquote. In the treatise on law, Thomas defends the view that human laws bind in conscience so long as they are just, that is, so long as they are derived from the natural law. They bind because the natural law is itself a participation in the eternal law, the very order of divine providence. Quote, if human laws are just, they receive the power to bind in the court of conscience from the eternal law from which they are derived, according to Proverbs 8.15, by me kings reign and lawgivers decree just things, unquote. So that leads then to my last question of detail, that is about the matter of punishment. While Thomas's view of punishment makes retributive punishment formative, his retributivism is different than that of, in some ways, of the Old Testament 
some aspects of the Old Testament law, or modern thinkers like Immanuel Kant, Kant in particular holds uh, a very strict form of retributivism. For, so, for example, with the death penalty, which I'll say a little bit more about in a minute, Kant thinks that a murderer must receive the death penalty. It's a categorical imperative. It's a categorical imperative. There's no just alternative to that. And that's because he thinks there always has to be this symmetry between crime and punishment. It's a strange theory. I mean, you can just start thinking about some possible crimes and then try to be strict in the way that he is about murder and you very quickly get into some dark territory that you don't want to be in. Um, For Thomas, punishment, like all law, is derived from the natural law. But recall that Thomas holds the human law to derive from the natural law in two ways. Some human laws are like conclusions from natural law premises, for example, the law against murder. Other human laws are made with more freedom as determinations from very general principles to very specific norms or applications. Punishment falls into the latter category, Thomas says. The natural law requires that some transgressions be punished by human law, but it does not dictate the form or amount of punishment. Thomas does say that punishment should be proportionate. Moreover, there should be, as I've already said, but Thomas says this more than once, there should be no cruelty. How then to determine the amount or type This seems to be related to the purposes of punishment that the legislator has in mind. Restraint would seem to be a fairly straightforward matter. Someone who poses a continuing threat to the community is imprisoned, presumably for as long as he is expected to pose a threat. How long that might be is likely related to two other aims. If the lawgiver has in view deterrence, then the length or severity of the sentence is aimed at influencing other potential malefactors. The lawgiver must then enter into their calculations and attempt to determine just what will deter, a judgment that may well vary from time to time and place to place. To take only the most draconian example, that of a potential death penalty, imagine what would seem to be two roughly analogous crimes in very different circumstances, horse thievery and auto theft. I speak from some experience here, having had three cars stolen from the environments of Catholic University. Two of them, I should say, were stolen from the parking lot of the Dominican House of Studies. (laughs) They were not stolen by Dominicans. We all know from Westerns that horse thieves in, for example, the Oklahoma Territory circa 1870 were often hanged quite often very soon after their um, conviction. I'm here to tell you that car thieves in our nation's capital are not hanged. Why not? (laughs) There is a sizable trained constabulary in the District of Columbia, along with courts and a formal institutional penal system. In the Oklahoma Territory, there was just, well, Clint Eastwood. The damage done to the common good in such primitive conditions by rampant crime was generally greater or potentially greater than in our own. And so punishments were made quite harsh so as to make crime a bet that normal people would decline. The house may not always win, but when it does, you lose a lot more than your shirt under that proposition. Finally, if one looks primarily as Thomas thinks the legislator should to reform, then one needs to know what kinds of punishments generally do reform criminals. 
And here, knowledge of empirical psychology is obviously important. In his discussion of the old law, Thomas discusses the question of what goes into determining the severity of criminal punishment. The factors, he notes, are quantity of sin in the offense, the degree of habituation of the criminal, the degree of concupiscence, and the ease of committing and concealing the sin. So there should be harsher punishments for sins that are easily easier to commit and hide. These factors are all taken into account when setting punishments, mainly so as to deter crime. Thomas also has an account of the character of different punishments related to natural human powers. The account arranges them in a hierarchy that explains the level of severity of punishments. He says, uh, this is in Contragentilis 3.141, so the greatest punishment will be for man to be cut off from happiness. After this ranks deprivation of virtue and of any perfection of the natural powers of the soul that is related to good action. Next comes the disorder of the natural powers of the soul, then bodily injury, and finally the taking away of exterior goods. The highest level of punishment, those consisting of the final end itself and of virtue, are proper to divine punishment. The lower deprivations are matter for temporal punishment. What sorts of temporal punishment? Thomas says that for punishment to work, potential wrongdoers must be threatened with the loss of things they esteem more than what they may gain by sin. What people love most are, quote, life, bodily safety, one's own freedom, external goods such as riches, one's country, and one's good name. Accordingly, he writes, quoting Augustine, who was himself paraphrasing Cicero, a law punishes with uh, and this is a quote from Secunda Secundae, question 108, article 3, quote, death, whereby man is deprived of his life, stripes, retaliation, or the loss of eye for eye, whereby man forfeits his bodily safety, slavery and imprisonment, whereby he is deprived of freedom, exile, where he is banished from his country, fines, whereby he is mulcted in his riches, ignominy wherein he loses his good name, unquote. These were all typical punishments in the ancient world and continued to be such during much of the Middle Ages. Corporal punishment was common to the degree that imprisonment, for example, was uncommon, and fines were only so effective when most people had only the most meager wealth. One of the punishments mentioned deserves a bit of discussion as it remains controversial, and that is, of course, capital punishment, Thomas clearly held that capital punishment was licit so long as it met certain conditions and was understood in the right way. There was, for one thing, the biblical precedent for such punishment. Beyond that, Thomas justified it on two main grounds. While most punishment in the temporal order is medicinal, this is not true of all punishments. Some aim to improve not the offender, but others by persuading them to refrain from crime. So Thomas admits the licitness of deterrence as a motive even for the death penalty. The main justification for the death penalty, however, seems to be the protection of society from a continuing threat posed by certain criminals judged to be irreformable. So the death penalty can be understood by reference to three of the four classic justifications of punishment. What about the first formative rationale, retribution? Retribution is probably the main justification that most Americans would accept for capital punishment. Aquinas' view here is somewhat ambiguous, I think, 
I'm a little bit uncertain, but I think. In one important place, he seems to reject a retributive motion for, uh, motive for the death penalty. In his discussion of property, Thomas asks whether theft is a mortal sin. And the objection holds that it is not a mortal sin, since mortal sins are punished with death, but theft is not punished with death. Well, Thomas was not thinking about horse thieves in 1870 in the Oklahoma Territory. In his reply, he says that the punishments of this life are more curative than retributive, and that death is inflicted, quote, not for every mortal sin, but only for those which inflict an irreparable injury, or again, for those involving some terrible depravity, unquote. Now, when he says mortal sin there and punishment, he's thinking about the punishment of things that are mortal sins by temporal communities. He's not thinking about divine punishment in that passage. This seems akin to the, to some, infamous passage in Thomas's explicit discussion of the death penalty in which he seems to compare the criminal to a kind of gangrenous limb that needs to be amputated for the good of the whole. It is worth noting again that incarceration, such as we know it in modern penal systems, was not really a very common option in the 13th century. And so the death penalty may have seemed a necessity to protect the innocent from particularly dangerous criminals. There's nothing about retribution as such here. However, in his discussion of the eternal punishment that God can inflict for mortal sin, Thomas makes a comparison to human capital punishment uh, and notes, and this is uh, Prima Secundae, question 87, article 3, uh, the reply to objection 1. Uh, he makes a comparison to capital punishment and notes, quote, the expediency of removing a murderer from the fellowship of the living, unquote, and says that this punishment, quote, in its own way represents, representat is the Latin word given there, the eternity of punishment inflicted by God, unquote. It is not altogether clear to me exactly what is entailed by this representation, but it could indicate some element of retribution in capital punishment since retribution is a divine prerogative, reflection of that. Okay, uh, finally, just a concluding word. I've tried to give a brief exposition of Thomas's understanding of punishment. I've emphasized that while the focal character of punishment is retribution, the actual retribution is mostly the providence, uh, province of divine punishment although human punishment retains an element of retribution precisely in the pain of suffering that one's own will rejects. Human punishments in practice aim first and most importantly to reform, but also to restrain so as to protect the innocent and society as a whole and also to deter others. Reform when successful is what best promotes the common good, but restraint and deterrence can also do this, albeit with less certainty. A concluding thought. Many of the details of what Thomas says about punishment are perfectly clear and probably acceptable elements of them to many modern people, but the larger frame of his account would certainly go beyond what most contemporary legal or political thinkers would accept. The most difficult part of this is surely the idea that law and thus le the legal right to punish is derived not from even hypothetical social contracts or the implication of some form of consequentialism or from the nature of fair play and the benefits following therefrom, but from God's own authority as creator and governor of the cosmos and as a kind of supreme legislator. But this is an issue beyond Thomas's account of punishment, 
it relates to all of his moral and political thinking. Thank you. We now have some time for questions. Thank you very much, Professor, for the presentation. Uh, it's come up in other sessions, a little bit of like a tension we feel between um, justice and mercy. And in your presentation, there's this reform aspect to punishment where a sinner can be, or a criminal can be reformed. Does Aquinas have any account of an act of mercy being reformative for the person who receives mercy? Um, that seems to be, it could be a biblical notion. The woman who anoints Jesus' feet, because she's been forgiven much, she loves much. So is there any account um, uh, of mercy being reformative for Aquinas? You know, I, I, I bet there is, but it, it does not come up really in these texts on temporal punishment, which is mostly what I was focusing on. I mean, certainly there's the notion of, of equity, that's not the same thing as mercy. I mean, um, right? Uh, I mean, equitas, or uh, what does he call it? He kind of gets the Greek a little bit weird. Epikeia, I think. That's not misericordia, obviously. But but there are circumstances under which equity could result in you know not punishing a person or something like that. Um, I would think the place to look for the sort of thing you're talking about is is really in the more theological parts of the account. It uh, doesn't come up in these places so much. <clears throat> uh, you drew a distinction between the public official administering punishment and, say, a parent administering punishment, and I that that felt unnecessary to me because uh, you, you argued that the, the the parents' manner of justice is qualitatively different because it's a, a, a moral uh, part of the parent. Um, but it seems like there's there's like different levels of government, right? Uh, like you have local government and the national government and the world government. Uh, and what counts as public locally, of course, wouldn't be, you, you don't know the mayor three cities over probably. Um, so it seems to me like the, the, the household is a sort of very local government and you could leverage the same arguments. The, the minister of justice within the household is the one administering the justice. Yeah, I, I resist that to this extent. Um, I mean, Thomas does have a discussion of, for example, he's got this that he calls it paternal justice. And he, he suggests that it, it is a form of justice. It's analogous. It's not justice in the focal sense of the term. And it's also the case that he sometimes uses the family as an example to kind of distinguish from justice by public officials. So, um, uh, and I think part of the reason for that is, again, if it's justice in the focal sense, then there has to be a kind of neutrality and uh, judging of the facts and an imposition of a punishment by someone who isn't interested in the way a family member would be and so forth. And there's certainly, there are certain things that, the pub, that a public official can do to a criminal that a parent can't do to a child. Thomas says, right? Um, so it, it seems to me there's enough of a difference there. And again, part of it is this notion of thinking of the child as part of the parent. You know, if you think about Aristotle's argument, which Thomas shares, right, that justice is between two supposites. It can't, you can't be just or unjust to yourself. And Aristotle's thinking about Plato, 
Uh, he thinks, yeah, there's a kind of metaphorical way of talking about justice there, but justice is really between real persons. Now, of course, a parent and a child is a real person, but it's a very peculiar relationship. As a matter of natural right, there's a physical, genetic connection between the parents and the children that doesn't exist in any other context. And I think always drives his account. Uh, connection between conditions for just war and conditions for punishment. I'm wondering, it seems like there might be a similar one between the conditions for carrying out a just war and the four purposes. Um, if so, could you speak on that, or is there somewhere Thomas or something that's talking about that? No, it's absolutely true. I mean, um, so when Thomas talks about, about war, he only discusses in that place what we today call uh, the use ad bellum part of just war theory, so the, the reasons for going to war. But the other part of just war theory is use in bellow. And the two classic parts of use in bellow are discrimination and proportionality. And now those are Thomistic categories. I mean, they come from other parts of Thomas, but he doesn't put them in the discussion of war. They get added later on. But so discrimination is absolutely every bit as relevant to criminal punishment. Um, in fact, he appeals to the same text, right, where, where Jesus talks about the, the necessity of separating the wheat and the tares. And in the case of war, but also in the case of the death penalty in particular, Thomas says, if you can't punish the guilty without not punishing the innocent, then you shouldn't punish the guilty. And he says punishment is always proportional. It has to be proportional. So exactly the same to Principles. And again, I, I think the uh, explanation is obviously that these are both cases of coercion, a, a very serious business, you know, not just for the person who's coerced, but actually for the people who do the coercing. I mean, to be in the business of executing coercion of other people is morally hazardous for the people who do it. And so it's very serious business, and he's, he's very careful about it. <clears throat> Thank you, Professor. I found the talk very illuminating. I'm going to bring up the elephant room and ask about the recent change in catechism. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that was going to For non-Catholics, you can uh, excuse us as we wade into this internecine debate. In the section uh, before the death penalty, uh, it, it's held that um, punishment is an attempt to re redress the disorder introduced by defense, uh, and we willingly accept it it takes on the value of expiation. It's uh, very similar to what, uh, to what Aquinas says, with, you know, punishment is just the, its absolute value when, when it's willingly taken on becomes a, a tony. Uh, in, the sec in the recent change, uh, well, we, we know that paragraph is derived from the dressing of my Holy Father, and, and I think his line is like in, in is like in the light of the gospel, um, you know, death penalty is inadmissible. Is is an offense against human dignity. Now, uh, the gospel is a matter of grace. It's you know revealed to us. We may you know derive considerations of uh, mercy from that. But to say something is against offense, something in defense against human dignity is a, well, it's not a natural argument, but it's a consideration you know, taken from human reason. If, if the death penalty were willingly accepted by the offender, then why should it be undermining human dignity? I'd like to, to hear your response to that. Yeah, you're trying to tempt me into uh, <laughs> saying things that could only result in my own punishment. Um, uh, so... Um, 
I actually came prepared. Um, <laughs> so I have all three formulations of the catechism here. <clears throat> um, and I even have an excerpt from the letter from Cardinal Lodaria explaining the change in the catechism. Um, uh, and now, one thing about ex- expiation, you know, obviously if you say, you know, the formative, the, the, the ratio poine uh, is, is retribution, and most punishments in the, the present life are medicinal, Thomas says repeatedly. So, you know, that might suggest then um, that those are sort of two radically different aims, and a retributive punishment could never, you know, be medicinal. Um, but there is at least one passage, I think it's probably more than one, but there's one that I found where Thomas does sort of say that, that people are sometimes moved to expiation when they face the death penalty. Again, I... You know, that doesn't just settle the practical issue at all. I think it's, it's a hard issue. But, but he does say that at one place. Um, it, it, there's also the passage I mentioned, that what some people consider an infamous passage in the, the section where Thomas is talking about the death penalty, where he compares the criminal to a kind of gangrenous limb. There's even a more infamous <laughs> passage there in the reply to, I think, objection two, maybe, um, where Thomas says, that the person who commits murder, the criminal who commits particularly serious crime, he says, falls away from the dignity of his nature. And therefore, the implication seems to be could be treated as something less than a human being. In which case you might say, aha, there it is. <laughs> Thomas admits that it violates human, although it's not a human anymore at that point, right? The person has lost his dignity. Well, if we know anything... <laughs> from uh, papal teaching in recent decades, it's that nobody ever loses their dignity. Um, So, you know, what do you make of that uh, statement that Thomas makes? I mean, I think certainly the least that has to be said is that, you know, there's different dignity exists at different levels. I mean, so there's sort of first act, the fact that you've got a certain kind of matter with a certain kind of form and it's a human being. There's a human dignity that comes just from that. But then there's a dignity that comes from the way a person behaves, a comportment that a person has. And certainly you could fall away from the dignity in the, in the sense of second act, and it would still be there in the case of first act. And that probably should influence uh, what you do with respect to criminal punishment. Um, the, what the catechism seems to have done, the teaching it seems to have formed, and again, I'll just read quickly just this passage from Cardinal Ladaria, which tries to explain what's going on. He says, the new text following in the footsteps of the teaching of John Paul II and Evangelium Vitae affirms that ending the life of a criminal as punishment for a crime is inadmissible because it attacks the dignity of the person, a dignity that is not lost even after having committed the most serious crimes. The conclusion is released taking into account the new understanding of penal sanctions applied by the modern state, which should be oriented above all to the rehabilitation and social reintegration of the criminal Finally, given that modern society possesses more efficient detention systems, the death penalty becomes unnecessary as protection for the life of innocent people. Certainly, it remains the duty of public authorities to defend the life of citizens, as has always been taught by the magisterium. So you've actually got three things there. I mean, there's inconsistent with human dignity. There's that there's a change in the modern understanding of punishment so that it's primarily reform. Um, And that deterrence is not mentioned at all. But then you've got restraint, but restraint can be effected by a functioning penal system, uh, and you don't have to have uh, the death penalty for that. So one question is whether the death penalty really is simply inconsistent with human dignity, entirely apart from how it's carried out, 
certainly Thomas did not think so. Um, uh, secondly, there's the question about the change in the understanding of, of punishment in the modern state. Well, it's, it, temporal punishment is primarily medicinal even for Aquinas. <laughs> so in that sense, there's nothing necessarily modern about that. I mean, he says it should be primarily medicinal. So I'm not sure I quite understand that. And then to, to say that restraint doesn't require it, boy, that all depends on what legal system you're talking about. Uh, you could certainly make that case in the U.S., and you could make it in a lot of European countries. But gosh, there are countries in the world where, you know, narco-terrorist kingpins continue to run their criminal empires from behind bars and sow all kinds of disorder in society. I mean, that was true in the U.S. in the 1920s and 30s. So empirically, I think there are clearly some questions. Um, now, let me say one last thing. I want to make it absolutely clear that my position is that the death penalty in the United States should be abolished. <laughs> uh, if, if any country meets the conditions that this teaching is meant to sort of describe, it seems to me it's the U.S. But it's, I do think there are some things about it that are unclear, and, um, and it's clearly different than – it's a different understanding than Thomas's. Um, so anyway. Yes, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I'm especially interested in the – proportionality being proportional to the fault instead of proportional to the damage caused by the fault. Um, there are a lot of like cases of moral luck brought up. You know, there's the drunk drive, two drunk drivers, equally drunk, equally deprived of rational faculties. One hits a kid on his way home. One doesn't. They both get pulled over. We sentence this extremely differently. You know, someone goes in and attempts murder with a gun full of blanks just by chance. We sentence that very differently. It seems that in reference to the disorder of the will, um, these cases would should be treated the same. We should be treating attempted murder like murder. We should be treating all drunk driving as if the most serious consequences of drunk driving had happened, which is not in fact what we do. Um, so how is then, is it justified according, do you think, to Aquinas to treat attempted murder and murder differently, just to take that example? And then if that is justified, how does this, how is this proportionate to the fault as the disordered act of the will instead of the damage caused by the disorder act, disordered act? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, you'd like more details in Aquinas' own position. He didn't get into as many details as you would want. You know, in, the, in modern criminal law, there is always a distinction, um, and in some cases really quite a substantial distinction, between the crime and, and the criminal sanctions. Um, and, and often sort of the view is, that the, in the in the sort of de definition of what are crimes and what should be punished, those should be things that are um, right. They serve some social purpose. Uh, they shouldn't necessarily embody anybody's controversial moral views or something like that. And judges should make determinations about guilt and innocence simply based on these procedures and so forth. But it's often quite tolerated for the judge's kind of moral sensibilities to be introduced in the sentencing. And so we tend to treat those two things as rather different. And, um, you know, I, I think it's natural for human beings to do that. At, at the same time, um, we also have in our system a distinction between criminal and civil penalties. And, um, you know, sometimes the criminal punishment of someone might seem oddly light, but then there's a civil action that follows, an attempt to recover damages, and that's really all about the consequences. And in some ways, that makes up for 
what seems to have been missing in the criminal sanctions, which operate with simpler and cruder categories in many cases. Thank you. Um, I wondered if, uh, say, what it, what it means that um, in this life a natural punishment is mostly medicinal, um, but there is an element of retribution. At first, I, I thought that might mean that it's mostly good um, because of its medicinal effects. But then I thought you said um, that most punishments themselves are medicinal as such. So, yeah, um, I can imagine someone thinking whether or not a given punishment is uh, required um, for retributive justice is sort of a yes or no. Um, and if no, then you have a much different question of justification for inflicting suffering for the sake of, you know, as an instrument to a different yeah, I, I mean, I think for Thomas, it's always it's always both in this sense, right? I mean, punishment as such, it, it seems it really is retributive. And in, in any punishment uh, that's contrary to the will of the person punished, and that's the formal character of punishment for Thomas, right, that's seen as an evil, and that's a retributive element. I mean, the person has engaged in overindulgence of their own will, and so some of that is taken away. You know, they, right, they have something inflicted on them, they're passive in this sense. The punishment is inflicted against their will. There's pain involved in that necessarily. So there's a retributive character to that. It's always there. At the same time, in thinking about the character of, of the punishment and what we want to come out of it, Thomas says repeatedly that in, in, the, in temporal life, it is medicinal. It is, we want it to be medicinal. We want the person to reform. And hopefully, what, what they initially receive as painful, necessarily painful, leads them to change and then to be able to look back and say, well, yeah, I mean, that was painful, but in fact, it was good in the way that pain can be sometimes. How often does that happen? Well, you don't know. But, but it, I think it's always the case that from the standpoint of the temporal common good, you know, reform is very important simply because um, you get a better society with better people. And so if you make the people better, that's better. Um, at the same time, retribution is always this formative element uh, because an order has been disturbed and it has to be made whole. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.